0: This is the Unstoppable Authors Podcast with world building warrior Angeline Trevina, planning and productivity powerhouse Holly
1: Line, and formatting fireball Julia Scott.
0: Every week, we bring you discussions on the craft of writing, author life and business, and interviews with some of the industry's most unstoppable authors. A writer's life doesn't have to be solitary. We're here to bust that myth, support you on your journey, and encourage you to be
1: unstoppable.
0: Welcome to episode 170 of the Unstoppable Authors Podcast. I'm your host, Holly Lyne, and today I have an interview with debut author Stephanie Shields. But before we get into the interview, uh, it's personal update time. And the last time I recorded a personal update for the podcast was before Christmas, so it has actually been a few weeks. Uh, Obviously, given the time of year, a large chunk of that time was taken up with family things, and I took over a week off work completely, which was very nice. But pretty much as soon as the new year was done, I was ready to get going again. So I've been busy getting things in motion for taking on coaching clients and preparing for my five day bright beginnings challenge, which starts the day this episode airs. It's not too late, however, if you'd like to join in, you still can sign up. Uh, Basically, each day this week, I'll be emailing out some motivation and advice and setting homework to help you get clear on what you want to accomplish in whatever time frame feels right for you at the moment, be it a week, a month, a quarter or a year. And setting you the challenge of taking action to help you reach that goal. At the end of the week, there's a live Q&A on Zoom as well, and a dedicated Discord server for ongoing accountability and support. Setting goals is all well and good, but the only way to accomplish them is to take action. So that's what the challenge is all about. It's completely free to join, and you can register for that at patreon.com forward slash holly line, and I will put that link in the show notes as well. Speaking of Patreon, we have no new patrons this week, but a huge thank you to all of our current patrons who sponsor this show. We appreciate all of your support so, so much. Patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive access to our off-air banter, and the chance to join in with our monthly sessions of Sprints and Giggles, an evening where we do writing sprints, answer questions, and generally have a laugh. If you'd like to join in and also support the show, you can do so for just £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash unstoppable authors. Right, so, on to the interview. Stephanie Shields writes and farms in the north of England. Her first passion was poetry, but in recent years she's chosen to write short stories, flash fiction and novellas. Her debut novel, The Strange Woman, a fusion of feminism, farming and the fantastical, came out in 2020. Her short fiction and poems have been anthologised, appeared in magazines and broadcast on radio. She self-published Swan Landings, her short story collection, in 2017. Stephanie performs her work locally, the Washburn Valley, where she farms, and at festivals in Leeds, the Bradford Literature Festival, the Ilkley Literature Festival, and on local radio. In 2018, she performed selections from Swan Landings at the Ripon International Festival. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Stephanie Shields. It's so lovely to have you here. Um, Could you get us started by
1: just introducing yourself and your books? Okay, right. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And um, as to my books, um, I've written two books. I've published them both, self-published or independently published. Mm-hmm. And um, the first one came out in two thousand and seventeen, and that was my um, my book of short stories called Swan Landings. And um, I was um, I realised that. Um, it was highly unlikely that a relatively unknown writer would get short stories published. So that's what got me into um, self-publishing. And then three years later, when I completed my first novel, uh, The Strange Woman, um, I um, I kind of followed conventional wisdom and thought that I, um, I needed an agent. Everyone told me I needed an agent. So... I um, I decided if I was going to have an agent, I'd, I'd put some effort into finding a good one. Perhaps I I was a, a little over ambitious, but um, I went for I went through the writers and artists yearbook as you do and um, picked out eight suitable ones who seem to be all top London ones <laughs> and. Um, I actually got one response within 24 hours asking me um, to send the full, you know, you send your three chapters, they asked me to send um, the whole thing. And could they have exclusive rights? And uh, this was the first week of lockdown. And uh, then um, uh, the the response after five people had deliberated was that there was uh, finally decided it wouldn't meet... It wouldn't match their list so mm-hmm. at this point i i thought i could see things were going a bit haywire with covid and lockdown back in march 20 and so i decided having self-published one and found it quite a pleasing experience i would go for the second one mm-hmm. and so i i published my my first novel as well and uh, that's the strange woman mm-hmm. yeah so uh, they're my two books Mm-hmm. And In the run-up to that, I mean, I, I've been writing since I was very, very young, but um, I, I'd um, certainly things got a lot more serious over about the last 15 years, and I got a number of short stories published and, and poems. I, I was originally um, very keen on writing poetry, and then 15 years ago, I started writing short stories. And then... A novel came upon me almost <laughs> against my will <laughs> I, I couldn't be doing with that novel business <laughs> so there we are okay yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: so um so you said you were you've been writing poetry for quite a long time um is that something from childhood or is it something that developed in your adulthood an interest
1: in writing no, it was from childhood and uh, all through school. I was, you know, the sort of, uh, always the group versifier and uh, had some success, I remember, because I'm not originally from these parts. I come from Leicestershire, and I think when I was about 14, I I won the count, Leicestershire County Arts Festival with a very <laughs> feminist poem, I'm proud to say, called Wash, Washing <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: Day," And it was...
1: It was lamenting the future of young girls like me who had to face a life of domesticity. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so because um, washing day was pretty hideous in those days, you know, it was the era of the twin tub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean that was in that was in my youth. I mean when I wrote more serious serious poetry as uh, you know as I got a wee bit older. Um but then life gets in the way and in my early 20s I you know I, I think uh, there seems to be some point where the birth of my son and and the stopping of writing poetry although mm-hmm. I did write a few about him but then after that you know it was um it was really a, you know, your your career and that took over, and mm. uh, your your writing was pushed a bit to the background, but it never went away. Mm.
0: <laughs> and mm. what do you think it was that brought it back to the fore for you?
1: Um, well, the shorts I joined, um, I joined a writing group called the Courthouse Writers in Otley, and they're a fantastic group, and we kind of set each other off, and um and we had some fantastic tutors or leaders and uh, that really helped you know to be in a group of writers i, th- I think is fantastic because it it can be a very lonely thing can't mm. it when you're writing and you you like to bounce things off people you want the reassurance of the group yeah and uh, they, uh, they were superb, and, and there's a lot of really good writers have come through the courthouse writers. And, of course, uh, the, the uh, person who led us for an awful long time was um, the poet James Nash, who mm. I think is a, an inspirational character. And uh, for both of my books, um, uh, James has, has acted as a, a light touch he would call himself like touch but he's been you know very motivational he's been mm-hmm. the the editor because mm-hmm. the the model of um, self-publishing I, I followed both times was one of um, supported self-publishing which mm-hmm. uh, I, I think suits me fine because um, it, you keep control but mm-hmm. um, you actually you um, you can you can bring in the people who you trust and who you admire if they're willing to help um, mm. where necessary. And I I I was very pleased, for example, to to have um, the artist cartoonist Jackie Jackie Fleming, who's who's based um, at the courthouse in Otley. Um, she did both of my my book covers and uh, you know she really got what I was trying to do in my writing and um and then of course James James Nash and uh then again people who I, I have been quite close to who who worked as proofreaders etc so mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's been uh, an interest I think if you if you use that model, it's almost like the best of both worlds in a way. You know, mm-hmm. you can get the the good advice and and the support, um, but you can also make sure that the book looks like you want it to look. And um, it's it's a kind of autonomous thing. Some would say it was pure control, but perhaps that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I'm not going to dispute that. But uh, so that that's an important thing. Yeah, and. Um, as I say, members of the courthouse who have been fantastic in their, their um, advice and, and uh, constructive criticism. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I, Yeah, I think um, the other great thing about um, self-publishing is that if you are totally dedicated to be, um, you know, finding an agent and then going through a publishing house unless you're very lucky you're going to be in for an awful lot of disappointment mm. and i think people get very disillusioned and the number mm. of people who actually get taken up is, is minute mm. and therefore you know it's a proactive thing you know because um i i mean you've got to have the confidence to know that this is what you want to do and go mm. forward with it and make sure you do a professional job um, but I think it's very easy to you know have one rejection too many, and mm. uh, that's that's not good. Mm. yeah, absolutely. Mm.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the strange woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so for the benefit of our listeners, um how Stephanie and I met is that my mum and I had this idea for a book about a local bit of history and then we discovered Stephanie had already written it. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I'm fascinated to know what inspired you and can you tell us a bit about uh, what the story is about, what the, the history it's based on is?
1: Right, well, it goes back to the spring of 1993 when uh, I first moved to timble and I moved into the centre of timble. Uh I'd all since I'd moved um, I, my uh, earlier adult life was spent in uh, in Hull um, but then I moved over to Leeds and then as soon as I got to Leeds being very fond of the outdoors i we discovered the Washburn Valley and what a brilliant place it was. And I fell in love with Timbull, And so I was a, a visitor to Timbal before I actually lived here. Um, but we moved in in 1993. And um, we had a visit uh, from someone who was the farm boy at this house. And um, so it's very old house this it was it was built in 1778 but he hadn't been there since then obviously but you know he was he was the farm boy and he was telling me all about the farm boy being a farm boy and and uh, then he said that um one of his forebears was one of the timber witches mm-hmm. and i'd never heard of these, so i i pressed him a little on this you know i wanted to know and he said uh, no it was a disgrace and it was these women who were taken off from timble and he so said they weren't witches and they were found in innocent and he says it were all them years ago and they were found innocent and um he says and they're still called witches they're still called the Timble witches and um I, I, my own background was, you know, through university and that was English literature and history and and that period, you know, from the end of, well, from Elizabeth's reign to James and what was happening um, to, especially to women in that period with the change. I mean, there's huge parallels with now, 400 years, because it's, Mm. This last August, it was the Quater centenary, hundred years since the women were taken from Timbuk to York Castle, thrown into the the jail, and then stood trial in front of the um, the Red Judge of Westminster, who was the assizes judge, and um, the, this—they were taken twice, um, they were tried twice, and in those days, if you were taken. Um, before the Assizes a second time accused of witchcraft, it was almost certain that you would hang and that you'd be taken out from uh, York Jail to Knavesmire and uh, you would meet what they used to call the three-legged mare, which was the gallows. And so these seven women were accused of witchcraft by the local poet, a poet of national repute, um, Edward Fairfax, and he was a great favourite of, he dedicated his um, wonderful book to Queen Elizabeth. But James I, Sixth of Scotland, when he came down and took over the throne, He absolutely adored Edward Fairfax's work and so did his son. In fact, it's said that Charles I, when he was awaiting, when he was um, awaiting, really, his his trial and execution, uh, he didn't know ultimately, I mean, he didn't know what the outcome would be, but ultimately was executed. Um, They didn't, he didn't know, um, you know, that, well, Fairfax, For some reason, uh, although he was toast of the court um, and very, very popular, he retreated to Fuston um, and took up residence in a house. He did have a house here, but uh, he kind of hid himself away with his family. Mm. And um, in the summer, in June of um, 1621, a baby was born, Baby Anne, um, at New Hall in Houston, and three months later, um, she died. Infant mortality at the time was exceedingly high, so it was no surprise that she died. And um, so um, he, um, he was very distressed, as was his wife, Dorothy, and it was really about three weeks later, that his um, oldest girl, Helen, started having these um, fits, and visions, and trances, and uh, she claimed possession. And she, in, in her dreams, um, she chose to accuse, the local women, seven local women of have, um, have possessing her and causing this terrible harm. And she had visions of demons and the devil. And and now it's uh, we would look on this as some form of psychosis. Um, but her father, who I think we can conclude he'd lost his muse, which is why he'd retreated north, took this very, very seriously and worked out a technique with Ellen and uh, while she was in trance she would um, talk and and have arguments with people and quite violent episodes and he would be by her side writing down everything she said and then she'd come out of trance and um, she would Say what she actually, what had actually happened to cause her to say those things. So, between them, they pieced together this, this narrative, um, which was then ultimately published by Fairfax in his book, The Daemonologia. And that was really based on the transcripts of all these notes that were presented um, in New York. Um, her younger sister, Helen. Apparently, it's supposed to be 21, although I, I've done a lot of work on the um, the Houston records and she wasn't 21. She was 16. So why her father insisted mm. she was 21, I think he was trying to give her more gravitas. Mm. Then there was um, the uh, eight year old, she became eight year old um, during this time period, Elizabeth. And uh, she started having the same dreams, and and then a neighbor, neighboring child, Maud Jaffrey, she too had these trans dreams, and they, these women from this area appeared in the three girls' dreams. And Fairfax thought this was conclusive evidence that the women were in league with the devil. Mm. And um, luckily the Assizes judge uh, and the jury used their common sense and um, they realised that what was being presented was in fact hearsay because if you think about it, any one of us um, could claim that a neighbour had appeared in a dream and done something dastardly. Mm. But you wouldn't expect that neighbour to be thrown into prison, would you? I mean, it's it's kind of bizarre what was really going mm. on. I think one of the surprising things about the whole episode was that there were some brilliant um, local men who stood up for the women, and this was very unusual in those times. Mm. And so my hero in the piece is Nicholas Smithson because he was the local vicar, and he along with a yeoman, Henry Graver, and Mr. Robinson of um, Swinsty Hall. And they, and uh, John Dibb, who was the son of the oldest of the seven women, um, they organized petitions and went and spoke in support of the women and um, refuted Fairfax's accusations that these women were of loose morals and, you know, they'd done all manner, they had familiars and all the things he cited to say that they were evil. So um, (laughs) that's the kind of, you know, um, backdrop to the strange woman. The reason, to cut a long story short, I called it the strange woman, was that, Fairfax and his daughters and Maud Jaffrey named six of the women, but they didn't name one. And she was, all, she was always called the strange woman. And um, I think it's very interesting that Fairfax wouldn't name her. And that led me to be very, very suspicious. So, um, my, my, I don't want to give any spoilers, but my, my story very much hinges on the potential relationship because this is, after all, a fiction. It's based in fact, of course, mm. but I, I'm highly suspicious of Fairfax and his relationship with the seventh woman mm. and what was actually going on. So, <laughs> but that's, 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 I guess, only half. the the novel, because the um, other half is um, very much about modern times, and um, I was really interested in um, the concept of of Timbal as an entity, and it it is a place that wears its past um, very close to the surface, and Timbal now... In some ways, it's not. It's very different, of course. But you know, I, I like the idea that there were certain, um, well, certain themes running through life, and, and that how much do things change? And so I, I, um, I decided. Um, I was inspired by a particular incident, but I, I wondered about what if. What if the witches hadn't the alleged witches hadn't actually gone away, and what if the strange woman was still an influence now? And um, so I um, I invented her descendant. I called the strange woman Margaret Hall, and um, I invented a descendant, and that was Foster Hall. And uh, he's the main male character in the, the second half. And I, I, um, I made a love affair and I decided a curmudgeonly Yorkshire farmer who's been deserted by his first wife, what he really needed um, was a very emancipated woman from Hebden Bridge, and uh, thus, I, I started to weave the romance between Izzy, who was trying to flee from supply teaching, a young woman from Hebden Bridge, who le- leaves her calling card, as it were. <laughs> she's, she's made up a make do a men business, and she puts her card in a hole in a stone when she's out walking with her best mate, and Foster finds it. And it, first of all, falls in love with the idea of her. And uh, then Margaret has to make the forebear, who's uh, very in tune with Foster, decides to make an intervention. <laughs> so that's the backdrop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: why, you said you first came across the Timber Witches in, um, when you first moved to the area in the 90s. Yeah. So- why why write it now? What was it that that struck what um and made you write the book now?
1: Well, um, it was I over the years and, and of course you know I was I was working full time in, in further education, and then I I wanted to take early retirement to write, and um, but I also keep sheep. And um, so I was having a lot of time down near Timble Gill, which is our land on the south side, watching my flocks, and um, I I couldn't get these women out of my head. I became increasingly concerned about them because it, it's such a, a beautiful valley, and I thought how oh, absolutely awful to be taken, it must have been for them. They'd have known nothing but this valley 400 Mm. years ago. What would it in reality have been like to be taken from here and dragged or put on a cart, both, um, and taken to whole, sorry, York Jail, and, um, I mean, just the logistics of the travel and the way the villagers would have, pelted them with rocks and excrement and the whole belief that the world was mad and against you. What did it feel like Mm. to be those women? And so I I finally had the time to start researching it. And um, I did research at the Borthwick. And um, I also got a lot of information on these sizes and some of the cases that Smithson, Nicholas Smithson, the vicar was involved in, other than the um, the Timber witch trial, um, and uh, I started to piece together as much as the history as I could, and I I did feel compelled to write it, and it was it was that sense of the whole injustice of the times, the the vulnerability of these women. I mean. In those days, if you were, especially if you were female, if you were poor, um, particularly if you were beyond childbearing age, um, you were seen as surplus to society. And there was a, a strong element of um, pointing a finger at neighbours and keeping people in line by example. And anyone who was slightly odd, um, the women uh, were used to foraging for, for food, for wild things, like, um, I make a big feature of the bilberry in the book, but <laughs> anything, mushrooms, there they they were women who were hungry. Anyone foraging for sticks to keep warm. Um, this was the early days in enclosures, and these people, these poor people, were a nuisance. Um, You've got the poor law coming in and, and villagers were having to support the poor. And um, there was a lot of resentment about this. People didn't want to be taxed. and mm. I mean, the the, the parallels and the, the inequalities and the parallels with now are, are, are stunning. Mm. And um, it was that sense of, I think it's interesting that you can feel so, so much solidarity mm. um, with women who were here 400 years ago. You just feel yeah. a great sense of indignation on their behalf, you mm. know. And yeah. uh, I sense that, I just sense they weren't that far away, you know. <laughs> I mean, people, when people write, they often talk about, you know, when writing flows and you... you you might refer to the angel on my shoulder because sometimes when you're writing and you're in full flow, you you actually um, you actually almost uh, forget your writing, don't you? It just comes. Yeah. And uh, it I, I did occur to me that I might have had seven on my shoulder, you know, <laughs> who, who were kind of pushing me to write this thing, does <laughs> it? They they would have uh, they they would have been very familiar with the land that I was walking over and sitting on, thinking about them, and uh, mm. and also um, it's land that um, e- edges Timble Timble Gill, and um, allegedly uh, according to Fairfax, this is where the women. Had their feast with the devil when when they were they were supposed to be celebrating one of the the uh, pagan the Celtic the old religion um, mm-hmm. festivals and uh, he makes a big thing about this so uh, um, you know I I don't know I I do think the area is very special and it does get under your skin rather. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So what surprised you about the process of writing the book?
1: Um, uh, well, one of the things that was strange was that I wrote the second half before I wrote the the part set in the, um, you know, the, the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, i I wrote I'd started to write um the modern romance, and uh, I found my my thoughts turning more and more to the interplay with the witches, which wasn't the other story I wanted to write and mm. and then it it kind of came together and and the witches started appearing in the modern part. Which is why, you know, I, I had to go back and and do quite a lot of in-depth research to get the history right because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I I wanted it to be as accurate as possible. I mean, Fairfax's motives, uh, you know, come come from me, but I, you know, I I did. Um, yeah, I, I did look at uh, things like the anatomy of Burton's anatomy of M- melancholy to check out some of the views of, uh, you know, the psychology of the mm-hmm. time, you know, and uh, that was very interesting as well, because that came out in 1621, so it's very contemporary. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I mean, it was such a ferment there, because you've got the the Mayflower going off, and you've got mm-hmm. the, first encyclopedia of psychology and you, you've got a strange clash of ancient and modern and you know mm. the odd person was quite rational of course then the majority believed in witches they did believe in witchcraft mm. and um you know what we now call professional people doctors and lawyers were all believing in witchcraft so uh, <laughs> it's it's one of those <laughs> mm. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah what what do you think was the most valuable lesson that you learned from
1: writing the book hmm mm. that's, that's a really interesting question isn't it um I, th- I think probably keep a completely open mind you know because um, I did find, um, as I was writing it, I was also still continuing to research lines of information, you know, and and so if you found something that perhaps contradicted your assumptions, and it's very important for writing historical fiction, then. Then you've got to be prepared to you know go back and and revise and mm-hmm. and um, I, th- I think one of the other things that surprised me was the the way the plot unfolded and i I found myself researching things I never imagined I would mm-hmm. I found I had to do an awful lot of medical research um, you know, like treatments for venereal disease um, in the 17th century, <laughs> in the late 16th century, which I found, you know, I was going to very reputable historical medical checks thinking, God, this is fantastic. They didn't do that, did they? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I was kind of all mouth and eyes, you know, thinking, mm. well I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and so gradually the more you find out. So as each new episode um unfolded, um I had a, I had great fun. In fact um one of the final chapters I wrote um, was about the um the midwife when um when when Margaret had her child, the first foster Hall, and I was very interested in, like, childbirth. How would it have been for the poor in 1621? You know, and what if they'd given birth outdoors? And what were the herbal treatments? And what was the aftercare like? Mm -hmm. And um, I found myself deeply engrossed in breastfeeding, and what was it like? Um, I I gave, um, they, they always say, you know, give, give your main characters various challenges, see how they bear up. And so I gave um, Margaret Hall incredibly small nipples. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, now they're interesting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's not something I thought I'd hear on this podcast. <laughs>
1: I hope I, I hope I not you'll be able to cut it. Like, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's really interesting. What would that mean in 1621? And you can have a great deal of fascination with these, these small things, you know. Um and um with like um Fairfax, Edward Fairfax, um his uh, his great poem about the uh, the Crusades and the, the Jerusalem, and um, uh, it uh, yes it it did occur to me that a lot of the um, the critics uh, in the good you know they just thought he was marvellous. Um, his his work was so vivid um, because it was almost as if he was there. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, it wouldn't have been there. And so it then came into my head, having done a fair bit on um, the poets of the time um, and people like Dunn and Johnson, etc., cetera, Marlowe, um, the fly, uh, you know, the flying potion, how did uh, how poets of the time and writers were very much... Um, into substances and what did they take and um, it it suddenly occurred to me that there was a great line of research here about how people would actually get inspiration through taking substances Mm. and again that was a rich scene to mine and therefore I can't say too much about this, you know, it depends who's listening, but if they, they I'm sure they haven't read the book. Um, again, it could be spoilers, but it's <laughs> the, the, the flying potion. Although our lead woman, um, Margaret Hall, the strange woman, is what we would now refer to as a, a hedge witch, she's someone who makes potions. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I mean, in truth, This is in the honourable tradition, later came Nicholas Culpepper. And people who were making these herbal cures, this was all poor people had. Mm. And um, when James I wanted to stop this and said that it was work of the devil, and the the feeling was that the poor should suffer, and... um, because uh, their reward would come in the next life well a lot of people who were working especially women herbalists and midwives were being prevented from plying their support mm-hmm. and um, it it was you know it was a neat way of reducing the population and the problem of the poor but um in reality uh, women were continuing some men were continuing to make potions and support people um because there was no other help they could have and mm-hmm. it was a very brave thing to do mm-hmm. um, and uh, anyway it would have been deemed illegal but uh, so mm-hmm. all, all of these things uh, came together <laughs> um these interests be it you know illegal potions or the flying <laughs> potion for the poets um, or how to treat venereal disease. It all came together to make a very interesting uh, area of research. You yeah. know, And uh, the plot evolved um, accordingly. So the mm. lesson being just keep a completely open mind and, and see where it leads you. Because I know I, I I from what you said to me when we met before, you are a person who, who's very much a planner, aren't you?
0: Not with um, my books. Not with my oh. books. No, no. <laughs> I plan my life, but uh, no, I'm a discovery writer, so I just see what happens
1: as I write. So Oh, that's reassuring. <laughs> oh, well, you you won't be feeling too censorious about my my evolving. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: so so obviously, um, your book is a very, uh, very much a local interest um, story. Yeah. So, how does that influence sort of your marketing efforts and how you reach readers?
1: Well, it's um, it's an interesting one. I mean, i i have been, I, I publish through Ingram Spark, mm. uh, print on demand, and that gives it a kind of more global mm. um, reach. And, yeah, I certainly sell through them, um, and it sells um, in, in America and uh, some European sales. Um, it's, um, it's promoted through them, but I must say, uh, on of course, at Amazon, um, and it's on Kindle, but by far the majority of my sales are um, are in Yorkshire,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I I've been really grateful to um, about six local bookshops for selling my book, <laughs> and uh, there's an interesting strand here because. Um, the independent bookshops, um, not all of them, as far as I can work out, are independent. Mm-hmm. But you do have some truly independent bookshops. And I don't like to generalise, and that would be wrong, but they're often run by very strong independent women who make their own choices. And these are not the sort of bookshops where you know there, there's any constraint, you, you don't have to be kind of commended in the, the Sunday Times. Um, these will make their own choices, and um, I, I am incredibly grateful to them because the, the book sells really well in Yorkshire. <laughs> um, it sells elsewhere, of course, it sells in Scotland, and you, you get copies going all over the country, and as I say, through the global sales. Mm-hmm. but by far the best is yorkshire so um, the first person am i allowed to name name bookshops or, yeah yeah that's fine yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was just wondering what your rules were <laughs> but i mean it, my, the first person to take the book in the local bookshop was was sarah in bookshop in the square Upley, and she's been fantastically supportive and then one day um uh the Diane Park from the wave of nostalgia in Howarth walked in and saw the book and um, asked Sarah for my details. And, and then she started to sell it. Mm-hmm. Then Linda at the Stripey Badger in Grassington mm-hmm. and uh, the you're over in Settle. And so it goes on, it sort yeah. of snowballs because, um, but these are very independent women and, and the Heritage Centre. Um, Pendle Heritage have also sold it so Mm -hmm. yeah so but I do find that that there's um, a a lot of um, interest in Yorkshire it it tends to be almost a cult book in Yorkshire (laughs) I get people writing to me it's very nice I'm I'm really thrilled yeah (laughs) yeah so did you
0: take the initiative in getting into that first bookshop and
1: then it it spiralled from there. Yes, I did. I, I, I um, emailed Sarah and she emailed back and said she would have it. She was very interested and she took a small number at first and then that's increased. And, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, my goodness, Diane over in um, Howard she's she's in in 12 months she sold 300 copies which is extraordinary for one bookshop you mm. know and, and so that's really really good yeah. and and again it just brisk sales at the stripey badger and uh, <laughs> it's very nice too because like linda at the Stripey badger her um her book club she has two book clubs associated with the stripey badger and um, lovely coffee shop and everything and And they've done it as the I think I was the November book of the month. Oh, lovely! uh, Yeah, Yeah. quite a few book clubs have done it. Mm. Yeah. So, but I I think the key for self-publishing, my the sort of book I've written, um, Mm. is is trying to get it into the local bookshops. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's obviously been really successful for you
1: yeah yeah it's, it's worked nicely and mm-hmm. um but i mean some some of the so-called independent bookshops just state categorically no we don't we don't do self-published mm-hmm. authors and they're they're very you know rule bound on this mm-hmm. and uh, you know no matter how how Popular, the book is elsewhere and how good it looks and what yeah. the, the, the print copy is like and the cover they yeah. still have this this attitude don't they I think there's they, still a bit of
0: prejudice there yeah
1: mm. yeah so yeah. uh, things change gradually don't they yes you they know? do <laughs> yeah
0: so speaking of change what is in the future for you what are you writing next what do you see on the horizon
1: Um, Well, I'm about halfway through the next one. And um, again, it's uh, a kind of time shift one. Um, Not such a big stretch of time on this one. I'm writing one called um, This Patch of Blue. And um, it's modern times. And uh, it's also the period, again, which I find fascinating from about um 1906 to um, just after the the second world War
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the heroine is the first heroine is um, in that stretch of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but again in in my own tradition, I've written the second part um before the first part <laughs> So the second part's complete and I'm now I'm now back in about... Um, 1920. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a bit weird. <laughs> apparently, I could only ever crawl backwards, so there, <laughs> there must be something something wrong with me.
0: <laughs> no, every writer's process is unique, and they're all equally valid.
1: <laughs> well, I, I keep telling myself this, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least, if you do it that way, you know where the book's going. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I think we're we're just about out of time. So, um, if you could just let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and your writing, that would be lovely.
1: Right. Well, um, my website is um the it, well my my publishing arm is the Sheepshed Press and um it's uh sheepshedpress.com in, in fact i can i'll send you um the link yeah and um my uh, my books are in the local bookshops i go there first <laughs> um be it Otley or Howard. I, I would go to these bookshops anyway because they're delightful bookshops <laughs> and um
0: for and, our uh, international
1: th- listeners. <laughs> oh, for international <laughs> listeners. Well, um, again, if um, if if they just Google Stephanie Shields, the strange woman, um, <laughs> then all the manner of, you know, for example, in America, Barnes and Noble Salad and um, Waterstones and um, uh, the um bookshop.org is there any of these mm-hmm. um a books etc there's a whole list of places where you can actually actually buy it if the okay. otley Howard, for grassington or grassington aren't convenient
0: thank you very much for talking to me today stephanie it's been an
1: absolute delight well thank you very much harlow thank you for having me
0: I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Stephanie and feel inspired to write and publish even if you never have before. There has never been a better time to get into writing and publishing. Despite the disruptions in the industry, there is a bright, bright future ahead. If you'd like to sign up for my Bright Beginnings Challenge, you can find the info at patreon.com forward slash hollyline. And if you want to support Unstoppable Authors and join us for Sprints and Giggles and get all of the other benefits of supporting the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash unstoppable authors. Please don't forget to share the podcast online and tag us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Unstoppable Authors. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Unstoppable Authors podcast. We'll be back next week with more of our tenacity and worldly wisdom. Don't forget to visit our website to get the show notes and heaps of helpful blog articles at unstoppableauthors.com. And join our guild of unstoppable authors and you will not only hear from us every week, but you will also get a free digital copy of my book, 30 Days of Worldbuilding. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to subscribe and leave a
1: review.